Hi everybody, Carla here. Thank you guys so much for listening to part one of The Color Purple. And I think we should jump right back into part two. Let me remind you of the explicit nature of this novel. And with that said, let's jump back into The Color Purple by Alice Walker, part two. Please stay tuned. Dear God, Suge writes she got a big surprise and she intend to bring it home for Christmas. What is it, us wonder? Mister, think it a car for him. Suge making big money now, dressing furs all the time, silk and satin too, and hats made out of gold. Christmas morning, us hear this motor outside the door. Us look out. Ha diggity dog! say mister, throwing on his pants. He rushed to the door. I stand in front of the glass, trying to make something out of my hair. It too short to be long, too long to be short, too nappy to be kinky, too kinky to be nappy. No set color to it either. I give up, tie it in a head rag. I hear Suge cry, oh, Albert, he say, Suge. I know they hugging. Then I don't hear nothing. I run out the door, Suge. I say, and put out my arms. But before I know anything, a skinny, big-toothed man wearing red suspenders is all up in my face. For I can wonder whose dog he is. He hugging me. Miss Seeley, he say. Oh, Miss Seeley, I heard so much about you. Feel like we old friends. Shook standing back with a big grin. This Grady, she say, this my husband. The minute she say it, I know I don't like Grady. I don't like his shape. I don't like his teeth. I don't like his clothes. Seem like to me he smell. Us been driving all night, she say. Nowhere to stop, you know. But here us is. She come over to Grady and put her arms out to him. He look up at him like he cute. And he lean down and give her a kiss. I glance round at mister. He looked like the end of the world. I know I don't look no better. And this my wedding present to us, say Shug. The car big and dark blue and say Packard on the front. Brand new, she say. She look at mister, take his arm, give it a little squeeze. While we here, Albert, she say, I want you to learn how to drive. She laugh. Grady drive like a fool, she say. I thought the police was going to catch us for sure. Finally, Shug really seemed to notice me. She come over and hugged me a long time. Us two married ladies now, she say. Two married ladies. And hungry, she say. What us got to eat? Dear God, Mr. Drink all through Christmas, him and Grady, me and Shug cook, talk, clean the house, talk, fix up the tree, talk. Wake up in the morning, talk. She's singing all over the country these days. Everybody know her name. She know everybody too. No Sophie Tucker, no Duke Ellington, no folks I ain't never heard of. And money? She makes so much money, she don't know what to do with it. She got a fine house in Memphis, another car. She got 100 pretty dresses, a room full of shoes. She buy Grady anything he think he want. Where you find him at? I asked. Up under my car, she say. The one at home. I drove it after the oil gave out, killed the engine. He, the man, fixed it. 
us took one look at one another. That was it. Mr. Feelings hurt, I say. I don't mention mine. Oh, she say, that old stuff finally over with you and Albert just like family now. Anyhow, once you told me he beat you and won't work, I felt different about him. If you was my wife, she say, I'd cover you up with kisses instead of licks and work hard for you too. He ain't beat me much since you made him quit, I say. Just a slap now and then when he ain't got nothing else to do. Y'all make love any better? She asked. Us try, I say. He try to play with the button, but feel like his fingers dry. Us don't get nowhere much. You still a virgin? She asked. I reckon, I say. Dear God, Mr. and Grady going off in the car together. Suge asked me, could she sleep with me? She cold in her and Grady bed all alone. Us talk about this and that. Soon talk about making love. Suge don't actually say making love. She say something nasty. She say, fuck. She asked me, how was it with your children, daddy? The girls had a little separate room, I say, off to itself, connected to the house by a little plank walk. Nobody ever come in there but mama. But one time when mama not home, he come. He told me to trim his hair. He bring the scissors and comb and brush and a stool. While I trim his hair, he look at me funny. He was a little nervous too, but I don't know why till he grabbed hold of me and crammed me up between his legs. I lay there quiet, listening to Suge breathe. It hurt me, you know, I say. I was just going on 14. I never even thought about men having nothing down there so big. It, it scared me just to see it and the way it poke itself and grow. Suge, so quiet, I think she sleep. After he threw, I say, he make me finish trimming his hair. I sneak a look at Suge. Oh, Miss Seeley, she say, and put her arms round me. They black and smooth and kind of glowy from the lamplight. I start to cry too. I cry and cry and cry. Seem like it all come back to me, laying there in Suge arms. How it hurt and how much I was surprised. How it stung while I finished trimming his hair. How the blood dripped down my legs and mess up my stocking. How he don't never look at me straight after that. And Nettie. Don't cry, Seely. Suge say, don't cry. She start kissing the water as it come down side of my face. After a while, I say, Mama finally asked how come she find his hair in the girl's room if he don't never go in there like he say. That when he told her I had a boyfriend, some boy he say he's seen sneaking out the back door. It the boy's hair, he say, not his. You know how she loved to cut anybody hair, he say. I did love to cut hair, I say to Suge. Since I was a little bitty thing, I'd run, go get the scissors if I saw hair coming and I'd cut and cut long as I could. That how come I was the one cut his hair, but always before I cut it on the front porch. It got to the place where every time I saw him coming with the scissors and the comb and the stool, I start to cry. Suge say, well, sir. And I thought it was only white folks do freakish things like that. 
My mama die, I tell Shug. My sister Nettie run away. Mister come get me to take care of his rotten children. He never asked me nothing about myself. He clam on top of me and fuck and fuck and fuck. Even when my head bandaged, nobody ever loved me, I say. She say, I love you, Miss Seely. And then she haul off and kiss me on the mouth. Um, she say, like surprise. I kiss her back, say, um, too. Us kiss and kiss till us can't hardly kiss no more. Then us touch each other. I don't know nothing about it, I say to Shug. I don't know much, she say. Then I feel something real soft and wet on my breast. Feel like one of my little lost baby's mouth. Way after a while, I act like a little lost baby too. Dear God, Grady and Mister come staggering in round daybreak. Me and Shug sound asleep, her back to me, my arms round her waist. What it like? Little like sleeping with Mama, only I can't hardly remember ever sleeping with her. Little like sleeping with Nettie, only sleeping with Nettie never feel this good. It warm and cushiony, and I feel Shug's big tits sort of flop over my arms like suds. It feel like heaven is what it feel like. Not like sleeping with Mister at all. Wake up, sugar, I say. They back, and Shug roll over, hug me, and get out the bed. She stagger into the other room and fall on the bed with Grady. Mister fall into bed next to me, drunk and snoring before he gets the quilts. I try my best to like Grady, even if he do wear red suspenders and bow ties, even if he do spend Shug's money like he made it himself, even if he do try to talk like somebody from the North. Memphis, Tennessee ain't North, even I know that. But one thing I sure enough can't stand the way he calls Shug mama. I ain't your fucking mama, Shug say, but he don't pay her no mind. Like when he be making goo-goo eyes at Squeak and Suge sort of tease him about it. He say, oh, mama, you know I don't mean no harm. Suge likes Squeak too. Try to help her sing. They sit in Odessa's front room with all the children crowded round them singing and singing. Sometime Swain come with his box. Harpo cook dinner and me and mister and the prize fighter bring our appreciation. It nice. Shook say to Squeak, I mean, Mary Agnes, you ought to sing in public. Mary Agnes say, no. She think because she don't sing big and broad like Shug, nobody want to hear her. But Shug say she wrong. What about all them funny voices you hear singing in church? Shug say, what about all them sounds that sound good, but they not like the sounds you thought folks could make? What about that? Then she start moaning. Sound like death approaching. Angels can't prevent it. It raised the hair on the back of your neck, but it really sounds sort of like panthers would sound if they could sing. I tell you something else, Shook say to Mary Agnes. Listening to you sing, folks get to thinking about a good screw. Oh, Miss Shook, Mary Agnes say, changing color. Shook say, what, too shamefaced to put singing and dancing and fucking together? She laughed. That's the reason they call us call what us sing the devil's music. Devils love to fuck. Listen, she say, let's go sing one night at Harpo's place. Be like old times for me. And if I bring you before the crowd, they better listen with respect. 
Niggas don't know how to act, but if you get through the first half of one song, you got them. You reckon that's the truth? Say Mary Agnes. She all big-eyed and delight. I don't know if I want her to sing, say Harpo. How come? asked Suge. That woman you got singing now can't get her ass out the church. Folks don't know whether to dance or creep to the mourner's bench. Plus, you dress Mary Agnes up the right way and you make piss pots of money. Yellow like she is, stringy hair and cloudy eyes, the men will be crazy about her. Ain't that right, Grady? She say. Grady look a little sheepish. Grin. Mama, you don't miss a thing, he say. And don't you forget it, say Suge. Dear God, this the letter I've been holding in my hand. Dear Seely, I know you think I'm dead, but I am not. I've been writing to you too over the years, but Albert said you'd never hear from me again. And since I never heard from you all this time, I guess he was right. Now I only write at Christmas and Easter, hoping my letter get lost among the Christmas and Easter greetings or that Albert get the holiday spirit and have pity on us. There is so much to tell you that I don't really know hardly where to begin. And anyway, you probably won't get this letter either. I'm sure Albert is still the only one to take the mail out the box. But if this do get through, one thing I want you to know. I love you and I am not dead. And Olivia is fine and so is your son. We all coming home before the end of another year. Your loving sister, Nettie. One night in bed, Shug asked me to tell her about Nettie. What's she like? Where's she at? I tell her how Mr. try to turn her head, how Nettie refuse him, and how he say Nettie have to go. Where's she go? She asked. I don't know, I say. She leave here, and no word from her yet? She asked. No, I say. Every day. When mister come from the mailbox, I hope for news, but nothing come. She dead, I say. Shook say, she wouldn't be someplace with funny stamps, you don't reckon? She looked like she's studying. Say, sometimes when Albert and me walk up to the mailbox, there be a letter with a lot of funny looking stamps. He never say nothing about it, just put it inside his pocket. One time I asked him, could I look at the stamps? But he said he'd take it out later, but he never did. She was just on her way to town, I say. Stamps look like stamps round here. White men with long hair. Hmm. She say, look like a little fat white woman was on one. What's your sister Nettie like? She asked. Smart? Yes, Lord, I say, smart as anything. Read the newspapers when she was a little more than talking. Did figures like they was nothing. Talked real well, too. And sweet. There never was a sweeter girl, I say. Eyes just brimming over with it. She loved me, too, I say to Suge. She tall or short, Suge asks. What kind of dress she liked to wear? What her birthday? What her favorite color? Can she cook? So? What about hair? Everything about Nettie she want to know. I talk so much, my voice start to go. Why you want to know so much about Nettie? I asked. Because she the only one you ever love, she say. Sides me.
dear God. All of a sudden, she'll look buddy-buddy again with Mr. They sit on the steps, go down to Harpo's, walk to the mailbox. She'll laugh and laugh when he got anything to say. Show teeth and tits aplenty. Me and Grady try to carry on like us civilized, but it hard. When I hear Suge laugh, I want to choke her, slap Mr. Face. All this week, I suffer. Grady and me feel so down, he turned to reefer. I turned to prayer. Saturday morning, Suge put Nettie letter in my lap. Little fat queen of England stamps on it, plus stamps that got peanuts, coconuts, rubber trees, and say Africa. I don't know where England at. Don't know where Africa at either, so I still don't know where Nettie at. He been keeping your letters, say Shug. No, I say, Mr. Mean sometimes, but he not that mean, she say. He that mean. But how come he do it, I asked. He know Nettie mean everything in the world to me. Shug say she don't know, but us gonna find out. Us seal the letter up again and put it back in Mr. Pocket. He walk round with it in his coat all day. He never mention it, just talk and laugh with Grady, Harpo, and Swain and try to learn how to drive Shug's car. I watch him so close I begin to feel a lightning in the head. For I know anything, I'm standing behind his chair with razor open. Then I hear Shug laugh like something just too funny. She say to me, I know I told you I need something to cut his, his hangnail with, but Albert got real niggerish about his razor. Mister, look behind him. Put that down, he say. Women always needing to cut this and shave that and always gumming up the razor. Suge got her hand on the razor now. She say, oh, it looked dull anyway. She take and sling it back in the shaving box. All day long, I act just like Sophia. I stutter. I mutter to myself. I stumble about the house, crazy for Mr. Blood. In my mind, he fallen dead every which away. By time night come, I can't speak. Every time I open my mouth, nothing come out but a little burp. She'll tell everybody I got a fever and she put me to bed. It probably catching, she say to mister. Maybe you better sleep somewhere else. But she stay with me all night long. I don't sleep. I don't cry. I don't do nothing. I'm cold, too. Pretty soon, I think maybe I'm dead. She'll hold me close to her and sometimes talk. One thing my mama hated me for was how much I loved to fuck, she say. She never loved to do nothing, had anything to do with touching nobody, she say. I try to kiss her. She turned her mouth away. Say, cut that out, Lily, she say. Lily Shug's Shug's real name. She just so sweet, they call her Shug. My daddy loved me to kiss and hug him, but she didn't like the looks of that. So when I met Albert, and once I got in his arms, nothing could get me out. It was good, too, she say. You know, for me to have three babies by Albert, and Albert weak as he is, it had to be good. I had every one of my babies at home, too. Midwife come, preacher come, and a bunch of good ladies from the church. Just when I hurt so much I don't know my own name, they think a good time to talk about repent. She laughed. I was too big a fool to repent. Then she say, 
I loved me some Albert. I don't even want to say nothing. Where I'm at, it peaceful, it calm. No Albert there, no Suge, nothing. Suge say, the last baby did it. They turned me out. I went to stay with my mama, my mama wild sister in Memphis. She just like me, mama say. She drink, she fight, she love men's to death. She work in a roadhouse, cook, feed 50 men, screw 55. Should talk and talk and dance, she say. Nobody danced like Albert when we was young. Sometimes us did the moochie for an hour. After that, nothing to do but go somewhere and lay down. And funny, Albert was so funny, he kept me laughing. How come he ain't funny no more, she asked. How come he never hardly laughed? How come he don't dance, she say. Good God, Celie, she say. What happened to the man I love? She quiet a little while. Then she say, I was so surprised when I heard he was going to marry Annie Julia, she say. Too surprised to be hurt. I didn't believe it. After all, Albert knew as well as me that love would have to go some to be better than ours. Us had the kind of love couldn't be improved. That's what I thought. But he weak, she say. His daddy told him I'm trash. My mama trash before me. His brother say the same. Albert try to stand up for us, get knocked down. One reason they give him for not marrying me is because I have children. But they his, I told an old mister. How us know, he asked. Poor Annie Julia. Shooks say, she never had a chance. I was so mean and so wild, Lord. I used to go around saying, I don't care who he married to. I'm going to screw him. She stopped talking a minute. Then she say, and I did too. Us fuck so much in the open. Us get fucking a bad name. But he fuck Annie Julia too, she say. And she didn't have nothing, not even a liking for him. Her family forgot all about her once she married. And then Harpo and all the children start to come. Finally, she started to sleep with that man that shot her down. Albert beat her. The children dragged on her. Sometimes I wonder what she thought about while she died. I know what I'm thinking about. I think. Nothing. And as much of it as I can. I went to school with Annie Julia, Shook say. She was, she was pretty. Man, black as anything, and skin just as smooth, big black eyes, look like moons, and sweet too. Hell, says Shug, I liked her myself. Why I hurt her so much? I used to keep Albert away from home for a week at the time. She'd come and beg for him, beg him for money to buy groceries for the children. I feel a few drops of water on my hand, and when I come here, Say Shug, I treated you so mean, like you was a servant, and all because Albert married you. And I'd even and I didn't even want him for a husband, she say. I never really wanted Albert for a husband, but just to choose me, you know, cause nature had already done it. Nature say, you two folks hook up, cause you a good example of how it's supposed to go. I didn't want nothing to be able to go against that. But what was good between us must have been nothing but bodies, she say. Because I don't know the Albert that don't dance, can't hardly laugh, never talk about nothing, beat you and, and hid your sister Nettie's letters. Who he? 
I don't know nothing, I think, and glad of it. Dear God, now that I know Albert hiding Nettie's letters, I know exactly where they is. They in his trunk. Everything that means something to Albert go in his trunk. He keep it locked up tight, but sure can get the key. One night when Mr. and Grady gone, us open the trunk, us find a lot of Shug's underclothes, some nasty picture postcards, and way down under his tobacco, Nettie's letters. Bunches and bunches of them, some fat, some thin, some open, some not. How us gonna, how us gonna do this? I asked Shug. She said, simple. We take the letters out of the envelopes, leave the envelopes just like they is. I don't think he look in this corner of the trunk much, she say. I heated the stove, put on the kettle, a steam and steamed the envelopes till we had all the letters laying on the table. Then us put the envelopes back inside the trunk. I'm going to put the put them in some kind of order for you, say Shug. Yeah, I say, but don't let don't let's do it in here. Let's go in in you and Grady's room. So she got up and us went into they into they little room. Shug sat in a chair by the bed with all Nettie's letters spread round her. I got on the bed with the pillows behind my back. These, the first ones, says Shug, they postmark right here. Dear Seeley, the first letter say, you've got to fight and get away from Albert. He ain't no good. When I left you all's house walking, he followed me on his horse. When we was well out of sight of the house, he caught up with me and started trying to talk. You know how he do. You sure is looking fine, Miss Nettie, and stuff like that. I tried to ignore him and walk faster, but my bundles was heavy and the sun was hot. After a while, I had to rest. And that's when he got down from his horse and started to try to kiss me and drag me back in the woods. Well, I started to fight him, and with God's help, I hurt him bad enough to make him let me alone. But he was some mad. He said, because of, of what I'd done, I'd never, I'd never hear from you again, and you would never hear from me. I was so mad myself, I was shaking. Anyhow, I got a ride into town on somebody's wagon, and that same somebody pointed me in the direction of Reverend Mister's place. And what was my surprise when a little girl opened the door and had your eyes set in her face? Next one said, Dear Seeley, I keep thinking it's too soon to look for a letter from you. And I know how busy you is with all Mr.'s children. But I miss you so much. Please write to me soon as you have a chance. Every day I think about you, every minute. The lady you met in town is named Corrine. The little girl's name is Olivia. The husband's name is Samuel. The little boy's name is Adam. They are sanctified, religious, and very good to me. They live in a nice house next to the church where Samuel preaches, and we spend a lot of time on church business. I say we because they always try to include me in everything they do so I don't feel so left out and alone. But God, I miss you, Seely. I think about you all the time, all the time you had laid yourself down for me. I love you with all my heart. Your sister, Nettie. Next one say, Dearest Seely, by now I am almost crazy. I think Albert told me the truth and that he is not going to give you my letters. The only person I can think of who would help us out is Pa, but I don't want him to know where I am. 
I asked Samuel if he would visit you and mister just to see how you are, but he says he can't risk putting himself in between man and wife, especially when he don't know them. And I felt bad for having to ask him. He and Corinne have been so nice to me, but my heart is breaking. It is breaking because I cannot find any work in this town and I will have to leave. After I leave, what will happen to us? How will we ever know what is going on? Corinne and Samuel and the children are part of a group of people called missionaries of the American and African Missionary Society. They have ministered to the Indians out west and are ministering to the poor of this town, all in preparation for the work they feel they were born for, missionary work in Africa. I dread parting from them because in the short time we've been together, they've been like a family to me, like family might have been, I mean. Right, if you can. Here are some stamps. Love, Nettie. Next one, that, dated two months later, say, Dear Seely, I wrote a letter to you almost every day on the ship coming to Africa, but by the time we docked, I was so down, I tore them into little pieces and dropped them into the water. Albert is not going to let you have my letters, and so what, what use is there in writing them? That's the way I felt when I tore them up and sent them to you on the waves. But now I feel different. I remember one time you said your life made you feel so ashamed you couldn't even talk about it to God. You had to write it, bad as you thought your writing was. Well, now I know. I know you will go on writing them, which is guidance enough for me. Anyway, when I don't write to you, I feel as bad as I do when I don't pray, locked up in myself and choking on my own heart. I am so lonely, Seely. The reason I am in Africa is because one of the missionaries that was supposed to go with Corinne and Samuel to help with these children was setting up a school. Suddenly, she suddenly married a man who was afraid to let her go and refused to come to Africa with her. So there they were, all set to go, with a ticket suddenly available and had no missionary to give it to. At the same time, I wasn't able to find a job anywhere around town, but I never dreamed of going to Africa. I never even thought about it as a real place, though Samuel and Corinne and even the children talked about it all the time. Miss Beasley used to say it was a place overrun with savages who didn't wear clothes. Even Corinne and Samuel thought like this at times. But they know a lot more about it than Miss Beasley or any of our other teachers. And beside, they spoke of all the good things that they could do for the downtrodden people from whom they sprang. People who need Christ and good medical advice. One day, I was in town with Corinne and we saw the mayor's wife and her maid. The mayor's wife was shopping, going in and out of stores, and her maid was waiting for her on the street and taking the packages. I don't know if you have ever seen the mayor's wife. She looks like a wet cat. And there was her maid, looking like they the very last person in the world you'd expect to see waiting on anybody, and in particular not on anybody that looked like that. I spoke. But just speaking to me seemed to make her embarrassed, and she suddenly sort of erased herself. It was the strangest thing, Seely. One minute I was saying howdy to a living woman. The next minute nothing living was there, only its shape. All that night I thought about it. Then Samuel and Corinne told me what they'd heard about how she got to be the mayor's maid. 
that she attacked the mayor and then the mayor and his wife took her from prison to work in their home. In the morning, I started asking questions about Africa and started reading all the books Samuel and Corinne have on the subject. Did you know there were there were great cities in Africa greater than Milledgeville or even Atlanta thousands of years ago that the Egyptians who built the pyramids and enslaved the Israelites were colored? That Egypt is in Africa? That the Ethiopia we read about in the Bible meant all of Africa? Well, I read and I read until I thought my eyes would fall out. I read where the Africans sold us because they loved money more than their own sisters and brothers, how we came to America in ships, how we were made to work. I hadn't realized I was so ignorant, Seely. The little I knew about my own self wouldn't have filled a thimble. And to think Miss Beasley always said I was the smartest child she ever taught. But one thing I do thank her for, for teaching me to learn for myself by reading and studying and writing clearhand and for keeping alive in me somehow the desire to know. So when Corinne and Samuel asked me if I would come with them and help them build a school in the middle of Africa, I said yes. But only if they would teach me everything they knew to make me useful as a missionary and someone they would not be ashamed to call a friend. They agreed to this condition, and my real education began at that time. They have been as good as their word, and I study everything, night and day. Oh, Celie, there are colored people in the world who want us to know, want us to grow and see the light. They are not all mean like Pa and Albert, or beaten down like Ma was. Corinne and Samuel have a wonderful marriage. Their only sorrow in the beginning was that they could not have children. And then they say, God sent them Olivia and Adam. I wanted to say, God has sent you their sister and aunt, but I didn't. Yes, their children sent by God are your children, Seely, and they are being brought up in love, Christian charity, and awareness of God. And now God has sent me to watch over them, to protect and cherish them, to lavish all the love I feel for you on them. It is a miracle, isn't it? And no doubt impossible for you to believe. But on the other hand, if you can believe I am in Africa and I am, you can believe anything. Your sister, Nettie. Next letter after that one say, Dear Seely, while we were in town, Corinne bought cloth to make me two sets of traveling outfits, one olive green and the other gray, long gourd skirts and, and suit jackets to be worn with white cotton blouses and lace-up boots. She also bought me a woman's boater with a checkered band. Although I work for Corinne and Samuel and look after their children, I don't feel like a maid. I guess this is because they teach me and I teach the children and there's no beginning or end to teaching and learning and working. It all runs together. Saying goodbye to our church group was hard, but happy too. Everyone has such high hopes for what can be done in Africa. Over the pulpit, there is a saying, Ethiopia shall stretch forth her hands to God. Think what it means that Ethiopia is Africa. All the Ethiopians in the Bible were colored. It had never occurred to me, though when you read the Bible, it is perfectly plain if you pay attention only to the words. It is the pictures in the Bible that fool you. 
the pictures that illustrate all the words. All the people are white. And so you just think all the people from the Bible were white too. But really, white people lived somewhere else during those times. That's why the Bible says that Jesus had hair like lamb's wool. Lamb's wool is not straight, Seely. It isn't even curly. What can I tell you about New York? Or even about the train that took us there? We had to ride in the sit-down section of the train. But Seely, there are beds on trains and a restaurant and toilets. The beds come out of the walls over the tops of the seats and are called berths. Only white people can ride in the beds and use the restaurant. And they have different toilets from colored. One white man on the platform in South Carolina asked us where we were going. We had got off the train to get some fresh air and to dust the grit and dust out of our clothes. When we said Africa, he looked offended and tickled too. Niggers going to Africa, he said to his wife. Now I have seen everything. When we got to New York, we were tired and dirty, but so excited. Listen, Seeley, New York is a beautiful city, and colored own a whole section of it called Harlem. There are colored people in more fancy motor cars than I thought existed, and living in houses that are finer than any white person's house down home. There are more than a hundred churches, and we went to every one of them, and I stood before each congregation with Samuel and Corinne and the children, and sometimes... Our mouths just dropped open from the generosity and goodness of those Harlem people's hearts. They live in such beauty and dignity, Seely, and they give and give, then reach down and give some more. When the name Africa is mentioned, they love Africa. They defend it at the drop of a hat. And speaking of hats, if we had passed our hats alone, they would not have been enough to hold all the donations to our enterprise. Even the children dredged up their pennies. Please give these to the children of Africa, they said. They were all dressed so beautifully too, Seely. I wish you could have seen them. There is a fashion in Harlem now for boys to wear something called knickers, sort of baggy pants fitted tight just below the knee, and for girls to wear garlands of flowers in their hair. They must be the most beautiful children alive, and Adam and Olivia couldn't take their eyes off them. Then there were the dinners we were invited to, the breakfasts, lunches, and suppers. I gained five pounds just from tasting. I was too excited to really eat. And all the people have indoor toilet Seely, and gas or electric lights. Well, we had two weeks of study on the Olinka dialect, which the people in this region speak. Then they were examined by a doctor, colored, and given medical supplies for ourselves and for our host village by the Missionary Society of New York. It is run by white people, and they didn't say anything about caring about Africa, but only about duty. There is already a white woman missionary not far from our village who has lived in Africa for the past 20 years. She is said to be much beloved by the natives, even though she thinks they are an entirely different species from what she calls Europeans. Europeans are white people who live in a place called Europe. That is a place where the white people down home came from. She says an African daisy and an English daisy are both flowers, but totally different kinds. The man at the society says she is successful because she doesn't coddle her charges. She also speaks their language. He is a white man who looks at us as if we cannot possibly be as good with the Africans as this woman is.
my spirits sort of dropped after being at the society. On every wall, there was a picture of a white man. Somebody called Speak, somebody called Livingstone, somebody called Daly, or was it Stanley? I looked for a picture of the white woman, but didn't see one. Samuel looked a little sad too, but then he perked up and reminded us that there is one big advantage we have. We are not white, we are not Europeans, we are black like the Africans themselves, and that we and the Africans will be working for the common goal, the uplift of black people everywhere. Your sister, Nettie. Dear Seeley, Samuel is a big man. He dresses in black almost all the time, except for his white clerical collar. And he is black. Until you see his eyes, you think he's somber, even mean, but he has the most thoughtful and gentle brown eyes. When he says something, it settles you because he never says anything off the top of his head and he's never out to dampen your spirits or to hurt. Corinne is a lucky woman to have him as her husband. But let me tell you about the ship. The ship called the Malaga was three stories high and we had rooms called cabins with beds. Oh, Seely, to lie in a bed in the middle of the ocean? And the ocean, Seely, more water than you can imagine in one place. It took us two weeks to cross it, and then we were in England, which is a country full of white people, and some of them very nice, and with their own anti-slavery and missionary society. The churches in England were also very eager to help us, and white men and women, who looked just like the ones at home, invited us to their gatherings and into their homes for tea and to talk about their work. Tea to the English is really a picnic indoors, plenty of sandwiches and cookies, and of course, hot tea. We all use the same cups and plates. Everyone said I seemed very young to be a missionary, but Samuel said that I was very willing and that anyway, my primary duties would be helping with the children and teaching a kindergarten class or two. Our work began to seem somewhat clearer in England because the English have been sending missionaries to Africa and India and China and God knows where all for over a hundred years and the things they have brought back. We spent a morning in one of their museums and it was packed with jewels, furniture, fur carpets, swords, clothing, even tombs from all the countries they had been. From Africa, they have thousands of vases, jars, masks, bowls, baskets, statues, and they are all so beautiful it is hard to imagine that the people who made them don't still exist. And yet the English assure us that they do not. Although Africans had once a better civilization than the European, though of course even the English do not say this. I get this from reading a man named J.A. Rogers. For several centuries they have fallen on hard times. Hard times is a phrase the English love to, love to use when speaking of Africa. And it is easy to forget that Africa's hard times were made harder by them. Millions and millions of Afri Africans were captured and sold into slavery. You and me, Seeley, and whole cities were destroyed by slave-catching wars. Today, the people of Africa, having murdered or sold into slavery, their strongest folks are riddled by disease and sunk in spiritual and physical confusion. They believe in the devil and worship the dead nor can they read or write. Why did they sell us? How could they have done it? And why do we still love them? These were the thoughts I had as we tramped through the chilly streets of London. I studied England on a map 
so neat and serene, and I became hopeful in spite of myself that much good for Africa is possible given hard work and the right frame of mind. And then we sailed for Africa, leaving Southampton, England on the 24th of July and arriving in Monrovia, Liberia on the 12th of September. On the way, we stopped in Lisbon, Portugal and Dakar, Senegal. Monrovia was the last place we were among people we were somewhat used to since it is an African country that was founded by ex-slaves from America who came back to Africa to live. Had any of their parents or grandparents been sold from Monrovia, I wondered about that, and what was their feeling once sold as slaves now coming back with close ties to the country that brought them to rule? Seely, I must stop now. The sun is, is not so hot now, and I must prepare for the afternoon classes and Vesper service. I wish you were with me, or I with you. My love, your sister, Nettie. Dearest Seely, it was the funniest thing to stop over in Monrovia after my first glimpse of Africa, which was Senegal. The capital of Senegal is Dakar, and the people speak their own language. Senegalese, I guess they would call it, and French. They are the blackest people I have ever seen, Seely. They are black like the people we are talking about when we say, so-and-so is blacker than black. He's blue-black. They are so black, Seely, they shine, which is something else folks down home like to say about real black folks. But Seely, try to imagine a city full of these shining blue black people wearing brilliant blue robes with designs like fancy quilt patterns, tall, thin, with long necks and straight backs. Can you picture it all, Seely? Because I felt like I was seeing black for the first time. And Seely, there is something magical about it because the black is so black, the eye is simply dazzled. And then there is the shining that seems to come, really, from moonlight. It is so luminous, but their skin glows even in the sun. But I did not really like the Senegalese I met in the market. They were concerned only with their sale of produce. If we did not buy, they looked through us as quickly as, as they looked through the white French people who lived there. Somehow, I had not expected to see any white people in Africa, but they are here in droves, and not all are missionaries. There are bunches of them in Monrovia, too, and the president, whose last name is Tubman, has some in his cabinet. He also has a lot of white-looking colored men in his cabinet. On our second evening in Monrovia, we had tea at the presidential palace. It looks very much like the American White House, where our president lives. Samuel says. The president talked a good bit about his efforts trying to develop the country and about his problems with the natives who don't want to work to help build the country up. It was the first time I'd heard a black man use that word. I knew that to white people, all colored people are natives, but he cleared his throat and said he meant only native to Liberia. I did not see any of these natives in his cabinet, and none of the cabinet members' wives could pass for natives. Compared to them and their silks and pearls, Corinne and I were barely dressed, let alone dressed for the occasion. But I think the women we saw at the palace spent a lot of their time dressing. Still, they looked dissatisfied, not like the cheery school teachers we saw only by chance as they herded their classes down to the beach for a swim. 
Before we left, we visited one of the large cocoa plantations they have. Nothing but cocoa trees as far as the eye can see, and whole villages built right in the middle of the fields. We watched the weary families come home from work, still carrying their cocoa seed buckets in their hands. These double as lunch buckets the next day. And sometimes, if they are women, their children are on their backs. As tired as they are, they sing, Seely, just like we do at home. Why do tired people sing? I asked Corinne. Too tired to do anything else, she said. Besides, they don't own the cocoa fields, Seely. Even President Tubman doesn't own them. People in a place called Holland do. The people who make Dutch chocolate. And there are overseers who make sure the people work hard, who live in stone houses in the corners of the fields. Again, I must go. Everyone is in bed and I am writing by lamplight, but the light is attracting so many bugs I am being eaten alive. I have bites everywhere, including my scalp and the bottoms of my feet. But did I mention my first sight of the African coast? Something struck in me, in my soul, Seely, like a large bell, and I just vibrated. Corinne and Samuel felt the same, and we kneeled down right on deck and gave thanks to God for letting us see the land for which our mothers and fathers cried and lived and died to see again. Oh, Seely, will I ever be able to tell you all? I dare not ask, I know, but leave it all to God. Your ever-loving sister, Nettie. Dear God, with being shock, crying, and blowing my nose and trying to puzzle out words us don't know, it took a long time to read just the first two or three letters. By the time us got up to where she good and settled in Africa, Mr. and Grady come home. Can you handle it? asked Shug. How I'm going to keep from killing him, I say. Don't kill, she say. Nettie be coming home before long. Don't make her have to look at you like us look at Sophia. But it's so hard, I say, while Shug empty her suitcase and put the letters inside. Hard to be Christ too, say Shug, but he manage. Remember that thou shalt not kill, he said, and probably wanted to add on to that, starting with me. He knowed the foos he was dealing with. But mister, not Christ. I'm not Christ, I say. You somebody to Nettie, she say. And she be pissed if you change on her while she on her way home. Us here, Grady and mister in the kitchen, dishes rattling, safe door open and shut. Nah, I think I feel better if I kill him, I say. I feels sickish, numb now. No, you won't. Nobody feel better for killing nothing. They feel something is all. That better than nothing. Seely, she say, Nettie not the only one you got to worry about. Say what? I asked. Me, Seely, think about me a little bit. Miss Seely, if you kill Albert, Grady be all I got left. I can't even stand the thought of that. I laugh thinking about Grady's big tooths. Make Albert let me sleep with you from now on while you hear, I say. And somehow or other, she do. Dear God, us sleep like sisters, me and Shug. Much as I still want to be with her, much as I love to look, my titties stay soft. My little button never rise. Now, I know I'm dead. But she say, no, just being mad, grief, wanting to kill somebody will make you feel that way. 
nothing to worry about. Titty's going to perk up, button going to rise again. I loves to hug up, period, she say. Snuggle, don't need nothing else right now. Yeah, I say. Hugging is good. Snuggle, all of it's good. She say, times like this lulls us ought to do something different. Like what? I asked. Well, she say, looking me up and down. Let's make you some pants. What I need pants for? I say, I ain't no man. Don't get uppity, she say. But you don't have a dress do nothing for you. You're not made like, like no dress pattern neither. I don't know, I say. Mr. not going to let his wife wear pants. Why not, say Shug. You do all the work around here. It's a scandalous the, the way you look out there plowing in a dress. How you keep from falling over or getting the plow caught in it is beyond me. Yeah, I say. Yeah, and another thing. I used to put on Albert's pants when we was courting, and he one time put on my dress. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. He used to be a lot of fun. Not like now. But he loved to see me in pants. It was like a, a red flag to a bull. Ugh, I say. I could just picture it, and I didn't like it one bit. Well, you know how they say is, say Shug. What us go make them out of, I say. We have to get our hands on, on somebody's army uniform, say Shug, for practice. That good, strong material and free. Jack, I say, Odessa's husband. Okay, she say. And every day we go in to read Nettie's letters and sew. A needle and not a razor in my hand, I think. She don't say anything else. Just come over to me and hug. Dear God, now I know Nettie alive and I begin to strut a little bit. Think, when she come home, us leave here, her and me and our two children. What they look like, I wonder. But it's hard to think about them. I feel shame. More than love, to tell the truth. Anyway, is they all right here? Got good sense and all? Shook say children got by incest turns into dunces. Incest part of the devil's plan. But I think about Nettie. It's hot here, Seely, she writes. Hotter than July, hotter than August and July. Hot like cooking dinner on a stove in a little kitchen in August and July. Hot. Dear Seeley, we were met at the ship by an African from the village we are settling in. His Christian name is Joseph. He is short and fat with hands that seem not to have any bones in them. When he shook my hand, it felt like something soft and damp was falling and I almost caught it. He speaks a little English, what they call pigeon English. It's very different from the way we speak English, but somehow familiar. He helped us unload our things from the ship into the boats that came out to get us. These boats are really dugout canoes like the Indians had, the ones you see in pictures. With all our belongings, we filled three of them and a fourth one carried our medical and teaching supplies. Once in the boat, we were entertained by the songs of our boatmen as they tried to out-paddle each other to the shore. They paid very little attention to us or our cargo. When we reached the shore, they didn't bother to help us alight from the boat and actually set some of our supplies right down in the water. 
As soon as they had browbeat poor Samuel out of a tip that Joseph said was too big, they were off hallooing another group of people who were waiting at the edge of the water to be taken to the ship. The port is pretty but too shallow for large ships to use, so there is a good business for the boatmen during the season the ships come by. These boatmen were all considerably larger and more muscular than Joseph, though all of them, including Joseph, are a deep chocolate brown, not black like the Senegalese. And Seely, they all have the strongest, cleanest, whitest teeth. I was thinking about teeth a lot on the voyage over because I had a toothache nearly the entire time. You know how rotten my back teeth are. And in England, I was, I was struck by the English people's teeth. So cricket, usually, and, and blackish with decay. I wondered if it was the English water. But the Africans' teeth remind me of horses' teeth. They are so fully formed, straight, and strong. The port's town is the size of the hardware store in town. Inside, there are stalls filled with cloth, hurricane lamps, and oil, mosquito netting, camp bedding, hammocks, axes, hoes, and machetes, and other tools. The whole place is run by a white man, but some of the stalls that sell produce are rented out by Africans. Joseph showed us things we needed to buy. A large iron pot for boiling water and our clothes, a zinc basin, mosquito netting, nails, hammer and saw and pickaxe, oil and lamps. Since there was nowhere to sleep in the port, Joseph hired some porters from among the young men loafing around the trading post, and we left right away for Olinka, some four days' march through the brush. Jungle to you, or maybe not. Do you know what a jungle is? Well, trees and trees and then more trees on top of that. And big. They are so big they look like they were built. And vines and ferns and little animals, frogs, snakes too, according to Joseph. But thank God we did not see any of these. Only humpbacked lizards as big as your arms, which the people here catch and eat. They love meat. All the people in this village. Sometimes, if you can't get them to do anything any other way, you start to mention meat. Either a little extra piece you just happen to have, or maybe if you want them to do something big, you talk about a barbecue. Yes, a barbecue. They remind me of folks at home. Well, we got here, and I thought I would never get the kinks out of my hips from being carried in a hammock the whole way. Everybody in the village crowded round us, coming out of the little round huts with something that I thought was straw on top of them, but is really a kind of leaf that grows everywhere. They pick it and dry it and lay it to overlap to make the roof rainproof. This part is women's work. Men folks drive the stakes for the hut and sometimes help build the walls with mud and rock from the streams. You never saw such curious faces as the village folks surrounded us with. At first, they just looked. Then one or two of the women touched my and Corinne's dresses. My dress was so dirty around the hem, from the hem from dragging on the ground for three nights of cooking round a campfire that I was ashamed of myself. But then I took a look at the dresses they were wearing. Most looked like they'd been drugged across the yard by the pigs, and they don't fit. So then they move up a little bit. Nobody's saying a word yet. They touched our hair. Then looked down at our shoes. 
We looked at Joseph. Then he told us they were acting this way because the missionaries before us were white people and vice versa. The men had been to the port, some of them, and had seen the white merchant, so they knew white men could be something else too. But the women had never been to the port, and the only white person they'd seen was the missionary they had buried a year ago. Samuel asked if they had if they had ever seen the white woman missionary 20 miles further on, and he said no. 20 miles through the jungle is a very long trip. The men might hunt up 10 miles around the village, but the women stayed close to their huts and fields. Then one of the women asked a question. We looked at Joseph. He said, the woman wanted to know if the children belonged to me or to Corinne or to both of us. Joseph said they belonged to Corinne. The woman looked us both over and said something else. We looked at Joseph. He said the woman said they both looked like me. We all laughed politely. Then another woman had a question. She wanted to know if I was also Samuel's wife. Joseph said no, that I was a missionary just like Samuel and Corinne. Then someone said they never suspected missionaries could have children. Then another said he never dreamed missionaries could be black. Then someone said that the new missionaries would be black and two of them and two of them women was exactly what he had dreamed. And just last night, too. By now, there was a lot of commotion. Little heads began to pop from behind mother's skirts and over big sister's shoulders. And we were sort of swept along among the villagers, about 300 of them, to a place without walls but with a leaf roof where we all sat down on the, on the ground, men in front, women and children behind. Then there was a loud whispering among some of the very old men who looked like the church elders back home with their baggy trousers and shiny, ill-fitting coats. Did black missionaries drink palm wine? Corinne looked at Samuel and Samuel looked at Corinne, but me and the children were already drinking it because someone had already put the little brown clay glasses in our hands and we were too nervous not to start sipping. We got there around four o'clock and sat under the leaf canopy until nine. We had our first meal there, a chicken and groundnut peanut stew, which we ate with our fingers, but Mostly, we listened to the songs and watched dances that raised lots of dust. The biggest part of the welcoming ceremony was about the roof leaf, which Joseph interpreted for us as one of the villagers recited the story that it was based upon. The people of this village think they have always lived on the exact spot where their village now stands, and this spot has been good to them. They plant cassava fields that yield huge crops. They plant cotton and mullet, all kinds of things. But once, a long time ago, one man in the village wanted more than his share of land to plant. He wanted to make more crops so as to use his surplus for trade with the white men on the coast. Because he was cheap at the time, he gradually took more and more of the common land and took more and more wives to work it. As his greed increased, he also began to cultivate the land on which the roof leaf grew. Even his wives were upset by this and tried to complain, but they were lazy women and no one paid any attention to them. Nobody could remember a time when the roof leaf did not exist in overabundant amounts, but eventually... The greedy chief took so much of this land that even the elders were disturbed, so he simply bought them off. 
with axes and cloth and cooking pots that he got from the coast traders. But then there came a great storm during a rainy season that destroyed all the roofs on all the huts in the village. And the people discovered to their dismay that there was no longer any roof leaf to be found. Where roof leaf had flourished from time's beginning, there was cassava, millet, groundnuts. For six months, the heavens and the winds abused the people of Olinka. Rain came down in spears, stabbing away the mud of their walls. The wind was so fierce, it blew the rocks out of the walls and into people's cooking pots. Then cold rocks, shaped like millet balls, fell from the sky, striking everyone, men, women, and children alike, and giving them fevers. The children fell ill first, then their parents. Soon the village began to die. By the end of the rainy season, half the village was gone. The people prayed to their gods and waited impatiently for the seasons to change. As soon as the rain stopped, they rushed to the old roofleaf beds and tried to find the old roots. But the endless numbers that had always grown there, only a few dozen had remained. It was five years before the roofleaf became plentiful again. During those five years, many were, many in the village died. Many left, never to return. Many were eaten by animals. Many, many were sick. The chief was given all this store-bought utensils and forced to walk away from the village forever. His wives were given to other men. On the day when all the huts had roofs again from the roof leaf, the villagers celebrated by singing and dancing and telling the story of the roof leaf. The roof leaf became the thing they worship. Looking over the heads of the children at the end of this tale, I saw, coming slowly towards us, a large brown spiky thing as big as a room with dozens of legs walking slowly and carefully under it. When it reached our canopy, it was presented to us. It was our roof. As it approached, the people bowed down. The white missionary before you would not let us have the ceremony, said Joseph, but the Olinka like it very much. We know a roof leaf is not Jesus Christ, but in its own humble way, is it not God? So there we sat, Seely, face to face with the Olinka God. And Seely, I was so tired and sleepy and full of chicken and groundnut stew, my ears began ringing with song that all that Joseph had said made perfect sense to me. I wonder what you will make of all this. I send my love. Your sister, Nettie. Dear Seely, it has been a long time since I had time to write, but always, no matter what I'm doing, I am writing to you. Dear Seely, I say in my head, in the middle of Vespers, the middle of the night, while cooking, dear, dear Seely, and I imagine that you really do get my letters and that you are writing me back. Dear Nettie, this is what life is like for me. We are up at five o'clock for a light breakfast of millet, porridge, and fruit, and the morning classes. We teach the children English, reading, writing, history, geography, arithmetic, and the stories of the Bible. At 11 o'clock, we break for lunch and household duties. From 1 until 4, it is too hot to move, though some of the mothers sit behind their huts and sew. At 4 o'clock, we teach the older children, and at night, we are available for adults. Some of the older children are used to coming to the mission school, but the smaller ones are not. 
Their mother sometimes dragged them, dragged them here, screaming and kicking. They are all boys. Olivia is the only girl. The Olinka do not believe girls should be educated. When I asked the mother why she thought this, she said, a girl is nothing to herself, only to her husband can she become something. What can she become? I asked. Why, she said, the mother of his children. But I am not the mother of anybody's children, I said, and I am something. You are not much, she said, the missionary's drudge. It is true that I work harder here than I ever dreamed I could work and that I sweep out the school and tidy up after service, but I don't feel like a drudge. I was surprised that this woman, whose Christian name is Catherine, saw me in this light. She has a little girl, Tashi, who plays with Olivia after school. Adam is the only boy who will speak to Olivia at school. They are not mean to her. It is just, what is it? Because she is where they are doing boys' things. They do not see her. But never fear, Celie. Olivia has your stubbornness and clear-sightedness, and she is smarter than all of them, including Adam, put together. Why can't Tashi come to school? She asked me when I told her the Olinka don't believe in educating girls. She said, quick as a flash, they're like white people at home who don't want colored people to learn. Oh, she's sharp, Celie. At the end of the day, when Tashi can, can get away from all the chores her mother assigns her, she and Olivia secret themselves in my hut, and everything Olivia has learned, she shares with Tashi. To Olivia, right now, Tashi alone is Africa. The Africa she came beaming across the ocean, hoping to find. Everything else is difficult for her. The insects, for instance. For some reason, all of her bites turned into deep, runny sores, and she has a lot of trouble sleeping at night because the noises from the forest frighten her. It is taking a long time for her to become used to the food, which is nourishing, but for the most part, indifferently prepared. The women of the village take turns cooking for us, and some are cleaner and more conscientious than others. Olivia gets sick from the food prepared by any of the chief's wives. Samuel thinks it may be the water they use, which comes from a separate spring that runs clear even in the dry season. But the rest of us have no ill effects. It is as if Olivia fears the food from these wives because they all look so unhappy and work so hard. Whenever they see her, they talk about the day when she will become the littlest sister wife. It is just a joke, and they like her, but I wish they wouldn't say it. Even though they are unhappy and work like donkeys, they still think it is an honor to be the chief's wife. He walks around all day holding his belly up and talking and drinking palm wine with the healer. Why do they say I will be a wife of the chief? Asks Olivia. That is as high as they can think, I tell her. He is fat and shiny with huge, perfect teeth. She thinks she has nightmares about him. You will grow up to be a strong Christian woman, I tell her, someone who helps her people to advance. You will be a teacher or a nurse. You will travel. You will know many people greater than the chief. Will Tashi? She wants to know. Yes, I tell her. Tashi too. Corinne said to me this morning, Nettie, to stop any kind of confusion in the minds of these people, I think we should call one another brother and sister all the time. Some of them can't seem to get it through their thick skulls that you are not Samuel's other wife. I don't like it, she said. Almost since the day we arrived, I've noticed a change in Corinne. She isn't sick. She works as hard as ever. 
She is still sweet and good-natured, but sometimes I sense her spirit is being tested and that something in her is not at rest. That's fine, I said. I'm glad you brought it up. And don't let the children call you mama, Nettie, she said, even in play. This bothered me a little, but I didn't say anything. The children do call me mama Nettie sometimes because I do a good bit of fussing over them, but I never try to take Corinne's place. And another thing, she said, I think we ought to try not to borrow each other's clothes. Well, she never borrowed anything of mine because I don't have much, but I'm all the time borrowing something of hers. You feeling yourself? I asked her. She said, yes. I wish you could see my hut, Celie. I love it, unlike our school, which is square, and unlike our church, which doesn't have walls. At least during the dry season, my hut is round, walled, with a round roof-leaf roof. It is 20 steps across the middle and fits me to a T. Over the mud walls, I have hung Olinka, plat Olinka platters and mats and pieces of tribal cloth. The Olinka are known for their beautiful cotton fabric, which they hand weave and dye with berries, clay, in indigo, and tree bark. Then there is my paraffin camp stove in the center and my camp bed to the side covered with mosquito netting so that it almost looks like the bed of a bride. Then I have a small writing table where I write to you, a lamp and a stool some wonderful rush mats on the floor. It is all colorful and warm and homey. My only desire for it now is a window. None of the village huts have windows, and when I spoke of a window to the women, they laughed heartily. The rainy season makes the thought of a window ridiculous, apparently, but I am determined to have one, even if a flood collects daily on my floor. I would give anything for a picture of you, Seeley. In my trunk, I have pictures donated to us by the missionary societies in England and America. Pictures of Christ, the apostles, Mary, the, crucifix the crucifixion. Speak, Livingstone, Stanley, Schweitzer. Maybe one day I'll put them up. But once, when I held them up to my fabric and matte-covered walls, they made me feel very small and unhappy, so I took them down. Even the picture of Christ, which generally looks good anywhere, looks peculiar here. We, of course, have all these pictures hung in the school and many of Christ and many of Christ behind the altar at church. That is enough, I think, though Samuel and Corinne have pictures and relics, crosses in their hut as well. Your sister, Nettie. Dear Seely, Tashi's mother and father were just here. They are upset because she spends so much time with Olivia. She is changing, becoming quiet and too thoughtful, they say. She is becoming someone else. Her face is beginning to show the spirit of one of her aunts who was sold to the traitor because she no longer fit into the village life. This aunt refused to marry the man chosen for her, refused to bow to the chief, did nothing but lay up, crack cola nuts between her teeth and giggle. They want to know what Olivia and Tashi do in my hut when all the other little girls are busy helping their mothers. Is Tashi lazy at home? I asked. The father looked at the mother. She said, no, on the contrary, Tashi works harder than most girls her age and is quicker to finish her work. But it is only because she wishes to spend her afternoons with Olivia. She learns everything I teach her as if she already knows it, said the mother. But this knowledge does not really enter her soul. The mother seemed puzzled and afraid, the father angry. I thought, aha, 
Tashi knows she is learning a way of life she will never live. But I did not say this. The world is changing, I said. It is no longer a world just for boys and men. Our women are respected here, said the father. We would never let them tramp the world as American women do. There is always someone to look after the Olinka woman, a father, an uncle, a brother, or nephew. Do not be offended, Sister Nettie, but our people pity women such as you who are cast out, we know not from where, into a world unknown to you where you must struggle all alone for yourself. So I am an object of pity and contempt, I thought, to men and women alike. Furthermore, said Tashi's father, we are not simpletons. We understand that there are places in the world where women live differently from the way our women do. But we do not approve of this different way for our children. But life is changing even in Olinka, I said. We are here. He spat on the ground. What are you? Three grown-ups and two children. In the rainy season, some of you will probably die. You people do not last long in our climate. If you do not die, you will be weakened by illness. Oh, yes, we have seen it all before. You Christians come here, try hard to change us, get sick and go back to England or wherever you come from. Only the traitor on the coast remains, and even he is no longer the same white man year in and year out. We know because we send him women. Tashi is very intelligent, I said. She could be a teacher, a nurse. She could help the people in the village. There is no place here for a woman to do those things, he said. Then we should leave, I said. Sister Corinne and I. No, no, he said. Teach only the boys, I asked. Yes, he said, as if my question was agreement. There is a way that the men speak to women that reminds me too much of Pa. They listen just long enough to issue instructions. They don't even look at women when women are speaking. They look at the ground and, and bend their heads toward the ground. The women also do not look in a man the women also do not look in a man's face, as they say. To look in a man's face is a brazen thing to do. They look instead at his feet or his knees. And what can I say to this? Again, it is our own behavior around Pa. Next time Tashi appears at your gate, you will send her straight home, her father said. Then he smiled. Your Olivia can visit her and learn what women are for. I smiled also. Olivia must learn to take her education about life where she can find it, I thought. His offer will make a splendid opportunity. Goodbye until the next time, dear Seely from a pitiful cast-out woman who may perish during the rainy season. Your loving sister, Nettie. Dear Seely, at first there was the faintest sound of movement in the forest, a kind of low humming. Then there was chopping and the sound of dragging. Then a scent, some days, of smoke. But now, after two months, during which I or the children or Corinne has all been sick, all we hear is chopping and scraping and dragging, and every day we smell smoke. Today, one of the boys in my afternoon class burst out as he entered, The road approaches! The road approaches! He had been hunting in the forest with his father and seen it. Every day now, the villagers gather at the edge of the village near the cassava fields and watch the building of the road. 
and watching them, some on their stools and some squatted down on their haunches, all chewing cola nuts and making patterns in the dirt. I feel a great surge of love for them, for they do not approach the road builders empty-handedly. Oh, no. Each day since they saw the roads approach, they have been stuffing their road builders with goat meat, millet mush, baked yam and cassava, cola nuts, and palm wine. Each day is like a picnic, and I believe many friendships have been made. Although the road builders are from a different tribe, some distance to the north and, near, and nearer to the coast, and their language is somewhat different. I don't understand it anyway, though the people of Olenka seem to, but they are clever people about most things and understand new things very quickly. It is hard to believe we've been here five years. Time moves slowly but passes quickly. Adam and Olivia are nearly as tall as me and doing very well in all their studies. Adam has a special aptitude for figures, and it worries Samuel that soon he will have nothing more to teach him in this field, having exhausted his own knowledge. When we were in England, we met missionaries who sent their children back home when it was no longer possible to teach them in the bush. But it is hard to imagine life here without the children. They love the open feeling of the village and love being in huts. They are excited by the hunting expertise of the men and the self-sufficiency of the women in raising their crops. No matter how down I may be, and sometimes I get very down indeed, a hug from Olivia or Adam completely restores me to the level of functioning, if nothing else. Their mother and I are not as close as we once were, but I feel more like their aunt than ever, and the three of us look more and more alike each day. About a month ago, Corinne asked me not to invite Samuel to my hut unless she were present. She said it gave the villagers the wrong idea. This was a real blow to me because I treasure his company. Since Corinne almost never visits me herself, I will hardly have anybody to talk to, just in friendship. But the children still come and sometimes spend the night when their parents want to be alone. I love those times. We roast ground nuts on my stove, sit on the floor, and study maps of all the countries in the world. Sometimes Tashi comes over and tells stories that are popular among Olinka children. I am encouraging her and Olivia to write them down in Olinka and English. It will be good practice for them. Olivia feels that, compared to Tashi, she has no good stories to tell. One day she started in on an Uncle Remus tale only to discover Tashi had the original version of it. Her little face just fell. But then we got into the discussion of how Tashi's people's stories got to America, which fascinated Tashi. She cried when Olivia told her how her grandmother had been treated as a slave. No one else in this village wants to hear about slavery, however. They acknowledge no responsibility whatsoever. This is one thing about them that I definitely do not like. We lost Tashi's father during the rainy season. He fell ill with malaria and nothing the healer concocted could save him. He refused to take the medicine we use for it or to let Samuel visit him at all. It was my first Olinka funeral. The women paint their faces white and wear white shroud-like garments and cry in a high keening voice. They wrapped the body in bark cloth and buried it under a big tree in the forest. Tashi was heartbroken. All her young life she has tried to please her father, never quite realizing that, as a girl, she never could. But 
The death brought her and her mother closer together, and now Catherine feels like one of us. By one of us, I mean me and the children, and sometimes Samuel. She is still in mourning and sticking close to her hut, but she says she will not marry again since she already has five boy children. She can now do whatever she wants. She has become an honorary man. And when I went to visit her, she made it very clear that Tashi must continue to learn. She is the most industrious of all Tashi's father's widows, and her fields are praised for their cleanliness, productivity, and general attractiveness. Perhaps I can help her with her work. It is in work that the women get to know and care about each other. It was through work that Catherine became friends with her husband's other wives. This friendship among women is something Samuel often talks about because the women share a husband, but the husband does not share their friendships. It makes Samuel uneasy. It is confusing, I suppose, and it is Samuel's duty as a Christian minister to preach the Bible's directive of one husband and one wife. Samuel is confused because to him, since the women are friends and will do anything for one another, not always, but more often than anyone from America would expect, and since they giggle and gossip and nurse each other's children, then they must be happy with things as they are. But many of the women rarely spend time with their husbands. Some of them were promised to, promised to old or middle-aged men at birth. Their lives always center around work and their children and other women, since a woman cannot really have a man for a friend without the worst kind of ostracism and gossip. They indulge their husbands, if anything. You should just see how they make admiration over them. Praise their smallest accomplishments, stuff with them, stuff them with palm wine and sweets. No wonder the men are often childish. And a grown child is a dangerous thing, especially since among the Olinka, the husband has life and death power over the wife. If he accuses one of his wives of witchcraft or infidelity, she can be killed. Thank God, and sometimes Samuel's intervention, this has not happened since we've been here. But the stories Tashi tells are often about such gruesome events that happened in the recent past. And God forbid that the child of a favorite wife should fall ill. That is the point at which even the women's friendships break down as each woman fears the accusation of sorcery from the other or from the husband. Merry Christmas to you and yours, dear Seely. We celebrate it here on the dark continent with prayer and song and the large picnic complete with watermelon, fresh fruit, punch, and barbecue. God bless you, Nettie. Dearest Seely, I meant to write to you in time for Easter, but it was not a good time for me and I did not want to burden you with any distressing news. So a whole year has gone by. The first thing I should tell you about is the road. The road finally reached the cassava fields about nine months ago, and the Olinka, who loved nothing better than a celebration, outdid themselves preparing a feast for the road builders who talked and laughed and cut their eyes at the Olinka women the whole day. In the evening, many were invited into the village itself, and there was merrymaking far into the night. I think Africans are very much like white people back home and that they think they are the center of the universe and that evening, everything that was done was done for them. The Olinka definitely hold this view and so they naturally thought the road being built was for them and in fact, the road builders talked much of how quickly the Olinka will now be able to get to the coast. With the tarmac road, it is only a three-day journey. 
by bicycle, it will be even less. Of course, no one in the Olinka owns a bicycle, but one of the road builders has one, and all the Olinka men covet it and talk of someday soon purchasing their own. Well, the morning after the road was finished, as far as the Olinka were concerned, after all, it had reached their village, what should we discover but that the road builders were back at work? They have instructions to continue the road for another 30 miles and to continue it on its present course right through the village of Olinka. By the time we were out of bed, the road was already being dug through Catherine's newly planted yam field. Of course, the Olinka were up in arms, but the road builders were literally up in arms. They had guns, Seely, with orders to shoot. It was pitiful, Seely. The people felt so betrayed. They stood by helplessly. They really don't know how to fight and rarely think of it since the old days of tribal wars as their crops and then their very homes were destroyed. Yes, the road builders didn't deviate an inch from the plan the headman was following. Every hut that lay in the proposed road path was leveled and Seely, our church, our school, my hut all went down in a matter of hours. Fortunately, we were able to save all of our things, but with the tarmac road running straight through the middle of it, the village itself seems gutted. Immediately after understanding the road builder's intentions, the chief set off toward the coast, seeking explanations and reparations. Two weeks later, he returned with even more disturbing news. The whole territory, including the Olinka's village, now belongs to a rubber manufacturer in England. As he neared the coast, he was stunned to see hundreds and hundreds of villagers, much like the Olinka clearing the forest on each side of the road and planting rubber trees. The ancient giant mahogany trees, all the trees, the game, everything of the forest was being destroyed and the land was forced to lie flat, he said, and bare as the palm of his hand. At first, he thought the people who told him about the English rubber company were mistaken, if only about its territory, including the Olinka village. But eventually, he was directed to the governor's mansion, a huge white building with flags flying in its yard, and there had, and there had an audience with the white man in charge. It was this man who gave the road builders their orders, this man who knew about the Olinka only from a map. He spoke in English, which our chief tried to speak also. It must have been a pathetic exchange. Our chief never learned English beyond the occasional odd phrase he picked up from Joseph, who pronounces English Yanglish. But the worst was yet to be told. Since the Olinka no longer owned their village, they must pay rent for it, and in order to use the water, which also no longer belongs to them, they must pay a water tax. At first, the people laughed. It really did seem crazy. They've been here forever but the chief did not laugh. We will fight the white man, they said. But the white man is not alone, said the chief. He has brought his army. This was several months ago, and so far nothing has happened. The people live like ostriches, never setting foot on the new road if they can help it, and never, ever looking towards the coast. We have built another church and school. I have another hut, and so we wait. Meanwhile, Corinne has been very ill with African fever. Many missionaries in the past have died from it. But the children are fine. The boys now accept Olivia and Tashi in class, and more mothers are sending their daughters to school. The men do not like it. Who wants a wife 
who knows everything her husband knows, they fume. But the women have their ways, and they love their children, even their girls. I will write more when things, when things start looking up. I trust God they will. Your sister, Nettie. Dear Celie, this whole year after Easter has been difficult. Since Corinne's illness, all her work has fallen on me, and I must nurse her as well, when she, which she resents. One day, when I was changing her as she lay in bed, she gave me a long, mean, but somehow pitiful look. Why don't my children look like you? She asked. Do you, do you really think they look so much like me? I said. You could have spit them out, she said. Maybe just living together, loving people makes them look like you. I said, you know how much some old married people look alike. Even these women saw the resemblance the first day we came, she said. And that's worried you all this time? I tried to laugh it off, but she just looked at me. When did you first meet my husband? She wanted to know. And that was when I knew what she thought. She thinks Adam and Olivia are my children and that Samuel is their father. Oh, Celie, this thing has been gnawing away at her all these years. I met Samuel the same day I met you, Corinne, I said. I still haven't gotten the hang of saying sister all the time. As God is my witness, that's the truth. Bring the Bible, she said. I brought the Bible and placed my hand on it and swore. You've never known me to lie, Corinne, I said. Please believe I am not lying now. Then she called Samuel and made him swear that the day she met me was the day he met me also. He said, I apologize for this, Sister Nettie. Please forgive us. As soon as Samuel left the room, she made me raise my dress and she sat up in her sickbed to examine my stomach. I felt so sorry for her and so humiliated, Celie. And the way she treats the children is the hardest part. She doesn't want them near her, which they don't understand. How could they? They don't even know why they were adopted. The village is due to be planted in rubber trees this coming season. The Olinka hunting territory has already been destroyed, and the men must go farther and farther away to find game. The women spend all their time in the fields, tending their crops and praying. They sing to the earth and to the sky and to their cassava and groundnuts, songs of love and farewell. We are all sad here, Celie. I hope life is happier for you. Your sister, Nettie. Dear Celie, guess what? Samuel thought the children were mine too. That is why he urged me to come to Africa with them. When I showed up at their house, he thought I was following my children and soft-hearted as he is, didn't have the heart to turn me away. If they are not yours, he said, whose are they? But I had some questions for him first. Where did you get them? I asked, and Celie, he told me a story that made my hair stand on end. I hope you, poor thing, are ready for it. Once upon a time, there was a well-to-do farmer who owned his property near town, our town, Celie, and as he did so well farming and everything he turned his hand to prospered, he decided to open a store and try his luck selling dry goods as well. Well, his store did so well that he talked two of his brothers into helping him run it, and as the months went by, they were doing better and better. Then the white merchants began to get together and complained that this store was taking all the black business away from them, and the man's blacksmith shop that he set up behind the store was taking some of the white. 
This would not do. And so one night, the man's store was burned down, his smithy destroyed, and the man and his two brothers dragged out of their homes in the middle of the night and hanged. The man had a wife whom he adored, and they had a little girl, barely two years old. She was also pregnant with another child. When the neighbors brought her husband's body home, it had been mutilated and burnt. The sight of it nearly killed her, and her second baby, also a girl, was born at this time. Although the widow's body recovered, her mind was never the same. She continued to fix her husband's plate at mealtimes, just as she'd always done, and was always full of talk about the plans she and her husband had made. The neighbors, though not always intending to, shunned her more and more, partly because the plans she talked about were grander than anything they could ever conceive of for, for colored people, and partly because her attachment to the past was so pitiful. She was a good-looking woman, though, and still owned the land, but there was no one to work it for her, and she didn't know how to herself. Besides, she kept waiting for her husband to finish the meal she'd cooked for him and go to the fields himself. Soon there was nothing to eat that the neighbors did not bring, and she and her small children grubbed around in the yard as best they could. While the second child was still a baby, a stranger appeared in the community and lavished all his attention on the widow and her children. And in short, they were married. Almost at once, she was pregnant a third time, though her mental health was no better. Every year thereafter, she was pregnant. Every year, she became weaker and more mentally unstable until many years after she married the stranger, she died. Two years before she died, she had a baby girl that she was too sick to keep, then a baby boy. These children were named Olivia and Adam. This is Samuel's story, almost word for word. The stranger who married the widow was someone Samuel had run with long ago before he found Christ. When the man showed up at Samuel's house with first Olivia and then Adam, Samuel felt not only unable to refuse the children, but as if God had answered his and Corinne's prayers. He never told Corinne about the man or about the children's mother because he hadn't wanted any sadness to cloud her happiness. But then, out of nowhere, I appeared. He put two and two together, remembered that his old running buddy had always been a scamp, and took me in without any questions, which, to tell the truth, had always puzzled me, but I put it down to Christian charity. Corinne had asked me once whether I was running away from home, but I explained I was a big girl now. My family back home was very large and poor, and it was time for me to get out and earn my own living. Tears had soaked my blouse when Samuel finished telling me all this. I couldn't begin then to tell him the truth. But Celie, I can tell you, and I pray with all my heart that you will get this letter, if none of the others. Pa is not our pa. Your devoted sister, Nettie. Dear God, that's it, says Shug. Pack your stuff. You coming back to Tennessee with me. But I feels dazed. My daddy Lynch, my mama crazy, all my little half-brothers and sisters no kin to me, my children not my sister and brother, pa not pa. You must be sleep. Dear Nettie, for the first time in my life I wanted to see pa, so me and Shug dress up in our new blue flower pants that match and big floppy Easter hats that match too, except her roses red, mine yellow, and us clam in the Packard and glide over there. 
They put in paved roads all up and down the country now, and 20 miles go like nothing. I saw Pop, Pop once I left home. One day, me and Mr. was loading up the wagon at the feed store. Pop was with May Ellen, and she was trying to fix her stocking. She was bent down over her leg and twisting her stocking into a knot above her knee, and he was standing over her, tap, tap, tapping on the gavel with his cane. Looked like he was thinking about hitting her with it. Mister went up to them, all friendly, with his hand stuck out, but I kept loading the wagon and looking at the patterns on the sacks. I never thought I'd ever want to see him again. Well, it was a bright spring day, sort of chill at first, like it'd be round Easter, and the first thing us notice soon as we turn into the lane is how green everything is. Like, even though the ground everywhere else not warmed up good, Pa's land is warm and ready to go. Then all along the road, there's Easter lilies and jonquils and, daff and daffodils and all kinds of early wildflowers. Then us notice all the birds sing and they little cans off all up and down the hedge. That itself is putting out the little yellow flowers smell like Virginia creeper. It's all so different from the rest of the country us drive through. It make us real quiet. I know this sound funny, Nettie, but even the sun seemed to stand a little longer over our heads. Well, say Shug, all this is pretty enough. You never said how pretty it was. It wasn't this pretty, I say. Every Easter time, it used to flood and all us children had colds. Anyhow, I say, I stuck close to the house and it sure ain't so hot. That ain't so hot, she asked as we swung up the long curving hill I didn't remember right up to a big yellow two-story house with green shutters and a steep green shingle roof. I laughed. Us must have looked, us must have took a wrong turn, I say. This some white person's house. It was so pretty, though, that us stopped the car and just sat looking at it. What kind of trees all them flowering? asked Shug. I don't know, I say. Look like peach, plum, apple, maybe cherry, but whatever they is, they sure pretty. All around the house, all in back of it, nothing but blooming trees. Then more lilies and jonquils and, rose and, and, and roses clamming over everything. And all this time, the little birds from all over the rest of the county sit up in these trees, just going to town. Finally, after us look at it a while, I say, it's so quiet. Nobody home, I guess. No, say Shug, probably in church, a nice bright Sunday like this. Us better leave then. I say, before whoever it is lives here gets back. But just as I say that, I notice my eye is staying on a fig tree it recognize, and us hear a car turning up the drive. Who should be in the car but Pa and some young girl look like his child? He get out on his side, then go round and open the door for her. She dressed to kill in a pink suit, big pink hat and pink shoes, a little pink purse hanging on her arm. They look at our license tag and then come up to the car. She put her hand through his arm. Morning, he says, when he gets up to Shug's window. Morning, she says slow, and I can tell he not what she expect. Anything I can do for you? He ain't noticed me and probably wouldn't even if he looked at me. Shug say under her breath, is this him? I say, yeah. What shocked Shug, and shocked me too, is how young he looked. 
He looked older than the child he was, even if she'd dress up like a woman, but he looked young for somebody to be anybody that got grown children and nearly grown grandchildren. But then I remember he not my daddy, just my children daddy. What'd your mama do? Asked Shug. Rob the cradle? But he not so young. I brought Celie, say Shug. Your daughter, Celie, she wanted to visit you. Got some questions to ask. He seemed to think back a second. Seely, he say, like who Seely? Then he say, y'all get out and come on up on the porch. Daisy, he say to the little woman with him, go tell Hetty to hold dinner. She squeezed his arm, reach up and kiss him on the jaw. He turned his head and watch her go up the walk, up the steps and through the front door. He follow us up the steps, up to the porch, help us pull out rocking chairs, then say, now, what y'all want? The children here? I asked. What children? He say. Then he laugh. Oh, they gone with they mama. She up and left me, you know. Went back to her folks. Yeah, he say. You would remember me, Ellen. Why she leave? I asked. He laughed some more. Got too old for me, I reckon. Then the little woman come back out and sit on the armrest of his chair. He talked to us and fondle her arm. This Daisy, he say, my new wife. Why, say Shug, you don't look more than 15. I ain't, say Daisy. I'm surprised your people let you marry. She shrug, look at Pa. They work for him, she say, live on his land. I'm her people now, he say. I feel so sick, I almost gag. Nettie in Africa, I say, a missionary. She wrote me that you ain't our real pa. Well, he say, so now you know. Daisy look at me with pity all over her face. It just like him to keep that to keep that from you, she say. He told me how he brought up two little girls that wasn't even his, she say. I don't think I really believed it till now. No, he never told them, say Shug. What a old sweetie pie, say Daisy, kissing him on the top of his head. He fondle and fondle her arm. Look at me and grin. Your daddy didn't know how to get along, he say. White folks lynch him. Too sad a story to tell pitiful little growing girls, he say. Any man would have done what I'd done. Maybe not, say Shug. He look at her, then look at me. He can tell she know. But what do he care? Take me, he say. I know how they is. The key to all of them is money. The trouble with our people is as soon as they get out of slavery, they didn't want to give the white man nothing else. But the fact is, you got to give them something, either your money, your land, your woman, or your ass. So what I did was just right off, offer him some money. Before I planted a seed, I made sure this one and that one knowed one seed out there was planted for him. Before I ground a grain of wheat, the same thing. And when I opened up your daddy's old store in town, I brought me my own white boy to run it. And what make it so good, he say, I bought him with white folks' money. Ask the busy man your question, Seely, say Shug. I think his dinner getting cold. Where my daddy buried, I asked. That all I really want to know. Next to your mammy, he say. Any marker, I asked. He look at me like I'm crazy. Lynch people don't get no marker, he say. Like this something everybody know. Mama got one, I asked. He say, no. 
The birds seem just as sweet when us leave as when us come. Then, look like as soon as us turn back on the main road, they stop. By the time us get to the cemetery, the sky gray. Us look up for Ma and Pa, hope for some scrap of wood that say something. But us don't find nothing but weeds and cocklebirds and paper flowers fading on some of the old graves. Shug, pick up an old horseshoe somebody horse lose. Us look at that old horseshoe and us turned round and round together until we was dizzy enough to fall out. And where us would have fell, us, struck the ho us stuck the horseshoe to the ground. Shug say, us each other's peoples now and kiss me. Dear Seeley, I woke up this morning bound to tell Corinne and Samuel everything. I went over to their, to their hut and pulled up a stool next to Corinne's bed. She's so weak by now that all she can do is look unfriendly and I could tell I wasn't welcome. I said, Corinne, I'm here to tell you and Samuel the truth. She said, Samuel already told me. If the children yours, why didn't you just say so? Samuel said, now, honey. She said, don't now, honey, me. Nettie swore on the Bible to tell me the truth, to tell the God's truth, and she lied. Corinne, I said, I didn't lie. I sort of turned my back more on Samuel and whispered, you saw my stomach, I said. What do I know about pregnancy, she said. I never experienced it myself. For all I know, women may be able to rub out all the signs. They can't rub out the stretch marks, I said. Stretch marks go right into the skin and a woman's stomach stretches enough so that it keeps a little pot like all the women have here. She turned her face to the wall. Corinne, I said, I'm the children's aunt. Their mother is my sister, Celie. Then I told them the whole story, only Corinne was still not convinced. You and Samuel telling so many lies, who can believe anything you say, she asked. You've got to believe, Nettie, said Samuel, though the part about you and Pa was a real shock to him. Then I remember what you told me about seeing Corinne and Samuel and Olivia in town when she was buying cloth to make her and Olivia dresses and how you sent me to her house because she was the only woman you'd ever seen with money. I tried to make Corinne remember that day, but she couldn't. She gets weaker and weaker and unless she can believe us and start to feel something for her children. I fear we will lose her. Oh, Celie, unbelief is a terrible thing. And so is the hurt we cause others unknowingly. Pray for us. Nettie. Dear Celie, every day for the past week, I've been trying to get Corinne to remember meeting you in town. I know if she can just recall your face, she will believe Olivia, if not Adam, is your child. They think Olivia looks like me, but that is only because I look like you. Olivia has your face and eyes exactly. It amazes me that Corinne didn't see the resemblance. Remember the main street of town, I asked. Remember the hitching post in front of Finley's dry goods store? Remember how the store smelled like peanut shells? She says she remembers all this, but no men speaking to her. Then I remember her quilts. The Olinka men make beautiful quilts which are full of animals and birds and people. And as soon as Corinne saw them, she began to make a quilt that alternated one square of applique figures with one nine patch block using the cloth the children had outgrown and some of her old dresses. I went to her trunk and started hauling out quilts. 
Don't touch my things, said Corinne. I'm not gone yet. I held up the first one and then another to the light, trying to find the first one I remembered making and trying to remember at the same time the dresses she and Olivia were wearing the months when I first lived with them. Aha, I said, when I found what I was looking for and laid the quilt across the bed. Do you remember buying this cloth? I asked, pointing to a flowered square. And what about this checkered bird? She traced the patterns with her finger and slowly her eyes filled with tears. She was so much like Olivia, she said. I was afraid she'd want her back, so I forgot her as soon as I could. All I let myself think about was how the clerk treated me. I was acting like somebody because I was Samuel's wife and a Spelman seminary graduate, and he treated me like any ordinary nigger. Oh, my feelings were hurt, and I was mad, and that's what I thought about, even told Samuel about on the way home. Not about your sister. What was her name? Seely? Nothing about her. She began to cry in earnest, me and Samuel holding her hands. Don't cry. Don't cry, I said. My sister was glad to see Olivia with you, glad to see her alive. She thought both her children were dead. Poor thing, said Samuel. And we sat there, talking a little and holding on to each other until Corinne fell off to sleep. But Celie, in the middle of the night, she woke up, turned to Samuel and said, I believe, and died anyway. Your sister in sorrow, Nettie. Dear Celie, just when I think I've learned to live with the heat, the constant dampness, even steaminess of my clothes, the swampiness under my arms and between my legs, my friend comes and cramps and aches and pains. But I must still keep going as if nothing is happening or be an embarrassment to Samuel, the children, and myself, not to mention the villagers who think women who have their friends should not even be seen. Right after her mother's death, Olivia got her friend. She and Tashi tend to each other as my guests. Nothing is said to me in any event, and I don't know how to bring the subject up, which feels wrong to me. But if you talk to an Olinka girl about her private parts, her mother and father will be annoyed, and it is very important to Olivia not to be looked at as an outsider. Although the one ritual they do have to celebrate womanhood is so bloody and painful, I forbid Olivia to even think about it. Do you remember how scared I was when it first happened to me? I thought I had cut myself, but thank God you were there to tell me I was all right. We buried Corinne in the Olinka way, wrapped in bark cloth under a large tree. All of her sweet ways went with her, all of her education and a heart intent on doing good. She taught me so much. I know I will miss her always. The children were stunned by their mother's death. They knew she was very sick, but that is not something that they think about in relation to their parents or themselves. It was a strange little procession, all of us in our white robes with our faces painted white. Samuel is like someone lost. I don't believe they spent a night apart since their marriage. And how are you, dear sister? The years have come and gone without a single word from you. Only the sky above us do we hold in common. I look at it often as if somehow, reflected from its amenities, I will one day find myself gazing into your eyes. 
your dear, large, clean, and beautiful eyes. Oh, Celie, my life here is nothing but work, 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 and worry. What girlhood I might have had passed me by. And I have nothing of my own, no man, no children, no, no close friend, except for Samuel. But I do have children, Adam and Olivia, and I do have friends, Tashi and Catherine. I even have a family, this village which has fallen on such hard times. Now the engineers have come to inspect the territory. Two white men came yesterday and spent a couple of hours in the innate politeness of the Olinka that they rushed about preparing food for them, though precious little is left since many of the gardens that flourish at this time of the year have been destroyed, and the white man sat eating as if the food was beneath notice. It is understood by the Olinka that nothing good is likely to come from the same persons who destroyed their houses, but custom dies hard. I do not speak to the men myself, but Samuel did. He said their talk was of all workers, kilometers, and land, rainfall, seedlings, machinery, and whatnot. One seemed totally indifferent to the people around him, simply eating and then smoking and staring off into the distance, and the other, somewhat younger, appeared to be enthusiastic about learning the language. Before, he says, it dies out. I did not enjoy watching Samuel speaking to either of them, the one who hung on every word, or the one who looked through Samuel's head. Samuel gave me all of Corinne's clothes, and I need them, though none of our clothing is suitable in this climate. This is true even of the clothing the Africans wear. They used to wear very little, but the ladies of England introduced the Mother Hubbard, a long, cumbersome, ill-fitting dress, completely shapeless, that inevitably gets dragged in the fire, causing burns aplenty. I have never been able to bring myself to wear one of these dresses, which all seemed to have been made with giants in mind, so I was glad to have Corinne's things. At the same time, I dreaded putting them on. I remembered her saying we should stop wearing each other's clothes and the memory pained me. Are you sure Sister Corinne would want this? I asked Samuel. Yes, Sister Nettie, he said. Try not to hold her fears against her. At the end, she understood and believed and forgave whatever there was to forgive. I should have said something sooner, I said. He asked me to tell you, he asked me to tell him about you, and the words poured out like water. I was dying to tell someone about us. I told him about my letters to you every Christmas and Easter and about how much it would have meant to us if he had gone to see you after I left. He was sorry he hesitated to become involved. If only I'd understood then what I know now, he said. But how could he? There is so much we don't understand and so much unhappiness comes because of that. Love and Merry Christmas to you, your sister, Nettie. Dear Nettie, I don't write to God no more. I write to you. What happened to God? Asked Shug. Who that? I say. She look at me serious. Big a devil as you is, I say. You not worried about no God, surely. She say, wait a minute. Hold on just a minute here. Just because I don't harass it like some people's us know don't mean I ain't got religion. What God do for me? I asked. She said, Seely, like a shock. He gave you life, good health, and a good woman that loved you to death. Yeah, 
I say, and he give me a lynch daddy, a crazed mama, a low-down dog of a step-pa, and a sister I probably won't ever see again. Anyhow, I say, the God I've been praying to and writing to is a man and act just like all other men's I know, trifling, forgetful, and low-down. She say, Miss Seeley, you better hush. God might hear you. Let him hear me, I say. If he ever listened to a poor colored woman, then the world would be a different place, I can tell you. She talk and she talk, trying to budge me away from blasphemy. But I blaspheme much as I want to. All my life, I never care what people thought about nothing I did, I say. But deep in my heart, I care about God, what he going to think. And come to find out, he don't think. He just sit up there glorifying and, and being deaf, I reckon but it ain't easy trying to do without God, even if you know he ain't there. Trying to do without him is a strain. I is a sinner, say Shug, cause I was born. I don't deny it. But once you find out what, what's out there waiting for us, what else can you be? Sinners have more good times, I say. You know why? She asked. Cause you ain't all the time worrying about God, I say. No, that ain't it, she say. Us worry about God a lot, but once us feel loved by God, us do the best us can to please him with what us like. You telling me God love you and you ain't never done nothing for him? I mean, not go to church, sing in the choir, feed the preacher and all like that? But if God love me, Celie, I don't have to do all that unless I want to. There's a lot of things I can do that I expect God likes. Like what? I asked. Oh, she say, I can lay back and just admire stuff, be happy, have a good time. Well, this sounded like blasphemy, sure enough. She say, Seely, tell the truth. Have you ever found God in church? I never did. I just found a bunch of folks hoping for him to show. Any God I ever felt in church, I brought in with me. And I think all the other folks did too. They come to, sh to church to share God, not find God. Some folks didn't have him to share, I said. They the ones didn't speak to me while I was there struggling with my big belly and Mr. Children. Right, she say. Then she say, tell me what your God looked like, Seely. Oh, no, I say. I'm too shame. Nobody ever asked me about it, and it don't seem quite right. But it all I got, I decide to stick up for him just to see what she'll say. Okay, I say. He big and old and tall and gray bearded and white. He wear white robes and go barefooted. Blue eyes, she asked. Sort of bluish gray. Cool. Big though. White lashes, I say. She laughed. Why you laugh? I asked. I don't think it's so funny. What you expect him to look like, mister? That wouldn't be no improvement, she say. Then she tell me this old white man is the same God she used to see when she prayed. If you wait to find God in church, Celie, she say, that's who is bound to show up because that's where he live. How come? I asked. Because that's the one that's in the white folks' white Bible. Shook, I say. God wrote the Bible. White folks had nothing to do with it. How come he looked just like them then, she say, only bigger and a heap more hair. How come the Bible just like everything else they make all about them doing one thing and another and all the colored folks doing is getting cursed? 
I never thought about that. Nettie say somewhere in the Bible, it say Jesus' hair was like lamb's wool. I say, well, say Shug, if he came to any of these churches we talking about, he'd have to have it conked before anybody paid him any attention. The last thing niggers want to think about they got is that his is is that he has kinky hair. That's the truth, I say. Ain't no way to read the Bible and not think God white, she say. Then she sigh. When I found out I thought God was white and a man, I lost interest. You mad because he don't seem to listen to your prayers? Hmm. Do the mayor listen to anything colored say? Ask Sophia, she say. But I don't have to ask Sophia. I know white people never listen to colored, period. If they do, they only listen long enough to be able to tell you what to do. Here's the thing, say Shug, the thing I believe. God is inside you and inside everybody else. You come into the world with God, but only them that search for it inside find it. And sometimes it just manifests itself, even if you're not looking or don't know what you're looking for. Trouble do it for most folks, I think. Sorrow, Lord, feeling like shit. It, I asked. Yeah, it. God ain't a he or a she, but a it. But what do it look like? I asked. Don't look like nothing, she said. It ain't a picture show. It ain't something you can look at apart from anything else, including yourself. I believe God is everything, say Shug. Everything that is or ever was or ever will be. And when you can feel that and be happy to feel that, you found it. Shug, a beautiful something, let me tell you. She frowned a little, look out across the yard, lean back in her chair, look like a big rose. She say, my first step from the old white man was trees, then air, then birds, then other people. But one day, when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it come to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and cried until I run all around the house. I knew just what it was. In fact, when it happened, you can't miss it. It's sort of like, you know what, she say, grinning and rubbing high up on my thigh. Shug, I say. Oh, she say, God love all them feelings. That's some of the best stuff God did. And when you know God loves them, you enjoys them a lot more. You can just relax, go on with everything that's going and praise God by liking what you like. God don't think it dirty? I asked. No, she say. God made it. Listen, God love everything you love and the mess of stuff you don't. But more than anything else, God love admiration. You saying God vain? I asked. No, she say, not vain, just wanting to share a good thing. I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. What it do when it pissed off? I asked. Oh, it makes something else. People think pleasing God is all God care about, but any fool living in the world can see it always trying to please us back. Yeah? I say. Yeah, she say. It always making little surprises and springing them on us when we least expect. You mean it won't to be loved, just like the Bible say? Yes, Celie, 
she say. Everything want to be love. A sing and dance, make faces and give flower bouquets, trying to be loved. You ever notice that trees do everything to get attention we do except walk? Well, us talk and talk about God, but I'm still adrift, trying to chase that old white man out of my head. I've been so busy thinking about him, I never truly notice nothing God make, not a blade of corn. How it do that? Not the color purple. Where it come from? Not the little wildflowers, nothing. Now that my eyes are opening, I feels like a fool next to any little scrub of a bush in my yard. Mister's evil sort of shrink, but not altogether. Still, it is like Shug say, you have to get man off your eyeball before you can see anything at all. Man corrupt everything, say Shug. Here, on your box of grits, in your head, all over the radio. He trying to make you think he everywhere. Soon as you think he everywhere, you think he God, but he ain't. Whenever you trying to pray and man plop himself on the other end of it, tell him to get lost, say Shug. Conjure up flowers, wind, water, a big rock. But this hard work, let me tell you. He been there so long, he don't want to budge. He threatened lightning, floods, and earthquakes, a spite. I hardly pray at all. Every time I conjure up a rock, I throw it. Dear Nettie, when I told Shug I'm writing to you instead of to God, she laughed. Nettie don't know these people, she say. Considering who I've been writing to, this strike me funny. It was Sophia you saw working as the mayor's maid, the woman you saw carrying the white woman's packages that day in town. Sophia, Mr. Mr. Son, Harpo's wife. Polices lock her up for sassing the mayor's wife and hitting the mayor back. First, she was in prison working in the laundry and dying fast. Then us got her moved to the mayor's house. She had to sleep in a little room under the house, but it was better than prison. Flies maybe, but no rats. Anyhow, they kept her eleven and a half years, give her six months off for good behavior so she could come home early to her family. Her biggest children married and gone, and her littlest children mad at her don't even know who she is. Think she act funny, look old, and dote on that little white gal she raised. Yesterday, us all had dinner at Odessa's house. Odessa Sophia's sister. She raised the kids, her and her husband Jack, Harpo's woman Squeak, and Harpo himself. Sophia sit down at the big table like there's no room for her. Children reach cross her like she not there. Harpo and Squeak act like a old married couple. Children call Odessa mama, call Squeak little mama, call Sophia miss. The only one seemed to pay her any attention at all is Harpo and Squeak's little girl, Susie Q. She sit cross from Sophia and squinch up her eyes at her. As soon as dinner's over, Suge push back her chair and light a cigarette. Now has come the time to tell y'all, she say. Tell us what, Harpo asked. Us leaving, she say. Yeah, say Harpo, looking round for the coffee and then looking over at Grady. Us leaving, Suge say again. Mr. looks struck, like he always look when Suge say she going anywhere. He reached down and rubbed his stomach, look offside her head like nothing been said. Grady say, such good peoples, that's the truth, the salt of the earth. 
time's come to move on. Squeak not saying nothing. She got her chin glued to her plate. I'm not saying nothing either. I'm waiting for the feathers to fly. Celia's is coming with us, say Shug. Mister's head swivel back straight. Say what? He asked. Celia's coming to Memphis with me. Over my dead body, Mister say. You satisfied that what you want? Shug say, cool as clabber. Mister start up from his seat. Look at Shug, plop back down again. He look over at me. I thought you was finally happy, he say. What wrong now? You a low down dog is what's wrong, I say. It's time to leave you and enter into the creation and your dead body just the welcome mat I need. Say what? He asked, shock. All round the table, folks' mouths be dropping open. You took my sister Nettie away from me, I say, and she was the only person loved me in this world. Mister, start to sputter, but, 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 sound like some kind of motor. But Nettie and my children coming home soon, I say. And when she do, us all together go whoop your ass. Nettie and your children, say mister, you talking crazy. I got children, I say. Been brought up in Africa, good schools, lots of fresh air and exercise. Turning out a heap better than the fools you didn't even try to raise. Hold on, say Harpo. Oh, hold on, hell, I say. If you hadn't tried to rule over Sophia, the white folks never would have caught her. Sophia's so surprised to hear me speak, she ain't chewed for 10 minutes. That's a lie, say Harpo. A little truth in it, say Sophia. Everybody look at her like they surprised she there. It's like a voice speaking from the grave. You was all rotten children. I say, you made my life a hell on earth and your daddy here ain't dead horses shit. Mister, reach over to slap me. I jab my case knife in his hand. You bitch, he say. What will people say? You running off to Memphis like you don't have a house to look after. Shug say, Albert, try to think like you got some sense. Why any woman give a shit what people think is a mystery to me. Well say Grady, trying to bring light. A woman can't get a man if people's talk. Shug look at me and us giggle. Then us laugh, sure enough. Then Squeak start to laugh. Then Sophia, all us laugh and laugh. Shug say, ain't they something? Us say, mm-hmm. And slap the table, wipe the water from our eyes. Harpo look at Squeak. Shut up, Squeak, he say. It bad luck for women to laugh at men. She say, okay. She sit up straight, suck in her breath, try to press her face together. He look at Sophia. She look at him and laugh in his face. I already had my bad luck, she say. I had enough to keep me laughing the rest of my life. Harpo look at her like he did the night she knocked Mary Agnes down. A little spark fly across the table. I got six children by this crazy woman, he mutter. Five, she say. He's so outdone, he can't even say, say what? He look over at the youngest child. She's sullen, mean, mischievous, and too stubborn to live in this world. But he love her best of all. Her name, Henrietta. Henrietta, he say. She say, yes, like they say it on the radio. Everything she say confuse him. Nothing, he say. Then he say, 
Go get me a cool glass of water. She don't, she don't move. Please, he say. So she go get the water, put it by his plate, give him a peck on the cheek, say, poor daddy. Sit back down. You're not getting a penny of my money, mister say to me. Not one thin dime. Did I ever ask you for money? I say, I never asked you for nothing, not even your sorry hand in marriage. Suge break in right there. Wait, she say, hold it. Somebody else going with us too. No use in Seely being the only one taking the weight. Everybody sort of cut their eyes at Sophia. She's the one they can't quite find a place for. She's the stranger. It ain't me, she say. And her looks say, fuck you for entertaining the thought. She reached for a biscuit and sort of root her behind deeper into her seat. One look at this big, stout, graying, wild-eyed woman, and you know not even to ask. Nothing. But just to clear this up, neat and quick, she say, I'm home, period. Her sister Odessa come and put her arms round her. Jack move up close. Course you is, Jack say. Mama crying? Asked one of Sophia's children. Miss Sophia, too, another one say. But Sophia cry quick, like she do most things. Who going? She asked. Nobody say nothing. It's so quiet you can hear the embers dying back in the stove. Sound like they falling in on one another. Finally, Squeak look at everybody from under her bangs. Me, she say. I'm going north. You going what? Say Harpo. He's so surprised. He began to sputter, sputter, just like his daddy. Sound like I don't know what. I want to sing say Squeak. Sing, say Harpo. Yeah, say Squeak. I ain't sung in public since Jolenta was born. Her name Jolenta, they call her Susie Q. You ain't had to sing in public since Jolenta was born. Everything you need, I done provided for. I need to sing, say Squeak. Listen, Squeak, say Harpo. You can't go to Memphis. That's all there is to it. Mary Agnes, say Squeak. Squeak, Mary Agnes, what, what difference do it make? It make a lot, say Squeak. When I was Mary Agnes, I could sing in public. Just then, a little knock came on the door. Odessa and Jack look at each other. Come in, say Jack. A skinny little white woman stick most of herself through the door. Oh, you all are eating dinner, she say. Excuse me. That's all right, say Odessa. Us just finishing up, but there's plenty left. Why don't you come sit down and join us? Or I could fix you something to eat on the porch. Oh, Lord, say Shug. It's Eleanor Jane, the white girl Sophia used to work for. She looked round till she spot Sophia. Then she seemed to let her breath out. No, thank you, Odessa, she say. I ain't hungry. I just come to see Sophia. Sophia, she say, can I see you on the porch for a minute? All right, Miss Eleanor, she say. Sophia pushed back from the table and they go out on the porch. A few minutes later, us hear Miss Eleanor sniffling. Then she really boohoo. What the matter with her? Mr. asked. Henrietta say, problems, like somebody on the radio. Odessa shrug. She always underfoot, she say. A lot of drinking in that family, say Jack. Plus, they can't keep that boy of theirs in college. He get drunk, aggravate his sister, chase women, hunt niggers, and that ain't all. That enough, say Shug. 
poor Sophia. Pretty soon, Sophia come back in and sit down. What the matter? asked Odessa. A lot of mess back at that house, say Sophia. You got to go back up there? Odessa asked. Yeah, say Sophia. In a few minutes, but I'll try to be back before the children go to bed. Henrietta asked to be excused, say she got a stomach ache. Squeak and Harpo's little girl come over, look up at Sophia, say, you got to go, Miss Sophia? Sophia say, yeah, pull her up on her lap. Sophia on parole, she say, got to act nice. Susie Q lay her head on Sophia's chest. Poor Sophia, she say, just like she heard Shug. Poor Sophia. Mary Agnes, darling, say Harpo. Look how Susie Q take to Sophia. Yeah, say Squeak. Children no good when they see it. She and Sophia smile at one another. Go on sing, say Sophia. I'll look after this one till you come back. You will? Say Squeak. Yeah, say Sophia. And look after Harpo too, say Squeak. Please, ma'am. Amen. Dear Nettie, well, you know, wherever there's a man, there's trouble. And it seemed like going to Memphis, Grady was all over the car. No matter which way us change up, he want to sit next to Squeak. While me and Shug sleeping, sleeping and he driving, he tells Squeak all about life in North Memphis, Tennessee. I can't have sleep for him raving about clubs and clothes and 49 brands of beer, talking so much about stuff to drink, make me have to pee. Then he have to find a road going off somewhere into the bushes to, for us to relieve ourselves. Mister, try to act like he don't care I'm going. You'll be back, he say. Nothing up nor north for nobody like you. Suge got talent, he say. She can sing. She got spunk, he say. She can talk to anybody. Suge got looks, he say. She can stand up and be noticed. But what you got? You ugly, you skinny, you shape funny. You're too scared to open your mouth to people. All you fit to do in Memphis is be Shug's maid. Take out her slop jar and maybe cook her food. You're not that good a cook either. And this house ain't been clean good since my first wife died. And nobody crazy or backward enough to want to marry you neither. What you gonna do? Hire yourself out to farm? He laughed. Maybe somebody let you work on the railroad. Any more letters come? I asked. He say, what? You heard me. I say, any more letters from Nettie come? If they did, he say, I wouldn't give them to you. You two of a kind, he say. A man try to be nice to you. You fly in his face. I curse you, I say. What that mean, he say. I say, until you do right by me, everything you touch will crumble. He laugh. Who you think you is? He say, you can't curse nobody. Look at you. You black, you poor, you ugly, you a woman. God damn, he say, you nothing at all. Until you do right by me, I say everything you even dream about will fail. I give it to him straight, just like it come to me. And it seemed to come to me from the trees. Who ever heard of such a of such a thing? Say, Mister, I probably didn't whoop your ass enough. Every lick you hit me will suffer you twice. I say. Then I say, 
You better stop talking because all I'm telling you ain't coming just from me. Look like when I open my mouth, the air rush in and shape the words. Shit, he say. I should have locked you up, just let you out to work. The jail you plan for me is the one in which you will rot, I say. She'll come over to us where we talking. She take one look at my face and say, Seely. Then she turned to mister. Stop, Albert, she say. Don't say no more. You're just going to make it harder on yourself. I'll fix her wagon, say mister, and spring toward me. A dust devil flew up on the porch between us, filled my mouth with dirt. The dirt say, anything you do to me already done to you. Then I feel Suge shake me. Seely, she say, and I come to myself. I'm poor. I'm black. I may be ugly and can't cook. A voice say to everything listening, but I'm here. Amen, say Shug. Amen. Amen. And that is the end of part two of Alice Walker's The Color Purple. Thank you guys so much for listening here at Carlet Reads the Classics. I hope to see you back here tomorrow for the final part of this wonderful novel. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.